Welcome back to the Sideline Sportscast. We are back here with another sportscast. Thank you guys for tuning in. And this week's episode, baseball is in a sticky situation. Ben Simmons might be out of Philly. We give you our NBA conference final predictions. We determine which NFC team can stop the Buccaneers repeat. But first, let's find out what we're drinking tonight. Yeah, so like we mentioned last week, um, the wives have taken over the beer selections for the podcast. So we're now in week two of uh, Allison's selections. Tonight we have something from Proof Brewing Co., uh, which is a brewery out of Tallahassee, Florida, which I just now realized, so I don't even know if I can drink this, um, mm. you know, coming from the enemy territory up there in the panhandle. But uh, it's a Mango Coconut Evil Kiss. It's a uh, Berliner-style Weiss. So uh, let's crack it open and see what we think. It'll be interesting. Holy super, mango. <laughs> super mango. So it's very similar to the um, the peach beer that we had even, a couple weeks even ago. More. But uh, yeah, even more mango. But I really like mango, so I, I'm not... I, I don't hate it. I, I think it's actually really good. Oh, um, I definitely don't hate this one either. But it, no, it's like... It's definitely better than the peach, but it's definitely, again, like... I think I described the peach beer as like being punched in the face with the peach. That's no comparison to how much mango um, is in this. You're being slapped in the face of the mango in this one. I mean, I'm not opposed. <laughs> it's it's kind of it's kind of thick. <clears throat> yeah, it's got like it, uh, um, it's almost like a like a like a the texture is almost like a smoothie, almost like it's it's kind of creamy. Yeah, but good. I mean, yeah, uh, I mean, I'd, re- I'd recommend it. I don't, I don't know how often I would buy this, but as a one-off, yeah, not bad. But, uh, yeah, so uh, check it out. Uh, if you're in the mood for just a straight fruit beer, Proof Brewing Co. Mango Coconut Evil Kiss, find it at your local Total Wine, um, possibly. I won't. I'm not speaking for Total Wine, so I don't know their uh, distribution, but uh, it's pretty good. Uh, but before we get into the topics tonight, as always, don't forget to check us out on the social media accounts. We are at Sideline Casters on both Facebook and Twitter. Join the conversation, post some memes, some gifts, whatever you find is the uh, hot button topic of the week. We're there. We like to talk about stuff, plenty of comments on the Facebook. Um, so moving into the first topic of the evening. Uh, the MLB discourse of late Logan has been dominated by the use of foreign substances by pitchers. So for those unfamiliar with the topic, pitchers have increasingly uh, been using various uh, concoctions to improve their grip on the baseball, uh, baseball mound and by extension ramp up the spin rate on their pitches. Current sh- uh, the current sh- strikeout scourge isn't um, reducible to one factor, the rising dominance of, of pitchers surely plays a leading role. Likewise, the sensible working assumption is that the use of grip-improving substances is contributing to said dominance. While it r- remains to be seen what difference the anti-foreign substance movement makes when it comes to restoring some balance to the pitcher-hitter dynamic in the game right now, the topic isn't going away. The latest of these substances to come to light has been the now famous spider tack used to increase grip on the baseball and allegedly used by some of baseball's most elite, including the uh, New York Yankees star Garrett Cole, 
who had a very awkward um, interview with the press a couple weeks ago. I don't know if you caught it, but uh, uh, yeah, super cringy, super s- yes, super just just no comment is better than what he did. Mm-hmm. But uh, so Logan, there's no doubt these substances have been used for by pitchers for over a century since the beginning of baseball when spit was the first substance that pitchers would use. But uh, what is your take on this use of the substances in the game? Should the league step in to assert harsher penalties to those players found using them? As with most sports, the course of baseball history kind of ebbs and flows between offense and defense. And doctoring the ball has always been one of those ways to get the uh, defense a little bit of edge. And it's kind of been this accepted agreement between offense and defense because it does provide pitchers with a certain degree of control, which means that batters don't have to worry about, you know, errant fastballs flying at their heads. But, you know, this season, it's harder than ever to hit the baseball. The league-wide batting average entering Friday's games was 237, the lowest mark since 1968, which itself was the lowest point in the 146-year history of Major League Baseball. Batters are striking out at, you know, nine times per team per game, the highest in history. And so far, we've talked about it several times on this podcast. We've seen six, you know, seven if you count the the uh, shortened game in this season, which is only one no-hitter short of the modern record for an entire season, and we're only halfway through. So clearly, there is a problem here. The, the, I'm not against MLB, you know, providing a universally accepted tacky substance to give pitchers control. But if that's going to be the case, then they need to allow batters to catch up. You know, in the past, we've talked about moving the bound, the mound back a foot or so or lowering the mound. So something like this needs to be done. I, I, I think if you just take away all sticky substances, you're going to have a lot of hit-by-pitches. I know since the implement, implementation of this rule that we've seen a lot more hit-by-pitches. Um, but as far as the league's current penalty, it, it's a joke, man. If pitchers caught using a foreign substance right now, they essentially go on a 10-day paid vacation. They get 10 days off paid. And for pitchers, if the rotation is structured correctly, that might not even mean they missed two starts. So the risk-reward math here just doesn't really add up. If we put it in terms of like PEDs, currently users face an 80-game ban for the first offense. You know, furthermore, they're banned from the postseason the same year the suspension was levied, and they also don't get paid during the suspension. By, but by no means, I'm not saying that PEDs and doctoring the ball are equivalent, uh, but at the very least, we should talk about pitchers not getting paid while they're on the suspension. Um, I think that the MLB needs to make it a, a 20-game suspension. Uh, I think it needs to include a fine. And maybe even throw in the postseason ban. And now we're closer to a real punishment that kind of will deter pitchers from continuing to use these substances, whether it's sunscreen, spit, spider tack. Uh, I've even heard boiled Coca-Cola. Yeah, I mean, I think it all comes down to, and you, you kind of touched on it, is, you know, are these substances, you know, are they giving the pitchers an, a competitive advantage, right? I mean, that's what it all comes down to. That's what the conversation is with PEDs. That's what the conver- conversation is going to be with the sticky substances. 
you know, of course, my stance, you know, being in the field that I'm in is, you know, the rules exist the way that they exist for a reason. And I don't, I think the, the main reason why the sticky substances aren't allowed to a degree is because clearly I think it does help certain pitchers have a competitive advantage, right? I mean, why else outlaw them if that's not what they're doing? I do agree with you. I think that the league, knowing how, uh, the game over the past 100 years, it's not like this is a new topic. It's just one that's back right. in the front page because it's been, you know, so many players have been caught using them this season. And I think it's exacerbated by your point, which is we're seeing astronomical defensive numbers this year on a rate at a rate that we've never seen in the history of baseball. So all that just, you know, culminating together in the perfect time to make this a hot button issue. And, you know, you got people on both sides of the, uh, of the fence, you know, some argue, you know, it's obvious that pitchers have been using this for years, you know, maybe not as advanced as like the spider tack, but certainly other substances, you know, pine tar being probably one of the more common uh, ones in history, you know, is there a common ground where the players can all agree on a, you know, substance that should be used to help grip? I mean, I don't know the answer. I don't play baseball. And I played, you know, when I was a kid and where nobody was using substances, you know, when you're 13, at least not as far as I was aware. Um, But, you know, something needs to be done by the league. I agree. You know, 10-day paid vacation. We had this conversation about hockey, um, different contexts, of course, you you know, enforcement and hits and stuff versus PEDs and, you know, substances to help players perform. But, if you're trying to outlaw some a behavior, you can't just give them slaps on the wrist. And I think some players have come out. Um, I don't know if you saw what Tyler uh, Glasnow said from the Rays about why Rays, he got yeah. injured this year. That just, to me, is almost laughable. Um, it's an excuse. Right, it's an excuse. But I think that there's only two courses of action. A, the league needs to crack down and say, listen, these are the rules. We ban forms foreign substances for a reason. They provide a competitive advantage if you're found using them, because it's not that it's it's pretty cut or dry. You're either using something or you're not, right? Umps are gonna figure it out if they come out to the mound and they see you have something under the brim of your cap or something on your elbow or something inside your glove. If you're caught cheating, because as the rules are written right now, it is cheating then they should be suspended for it can be 10 days, but maybe 10 days without pay or you're suspended for your next regularly scheduled starts so that the team can't just manipulate their rotation to make it. So you're not even really missing any games, right? Mm-hmm. That or agree on a substance, agree on something that you're going to let pitchers use to slightly increase their grip on the ball, cut down on hit batsmen make pitchers happy, but I think it's it's pretty black or white, in my opinion. It's one or the other. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, and even the batters, they, they don't want to be hit by pitches. You know, they, they don't want to have to, like, fear for their health and safety as well. So I think a universal substance is probably the best way for them to go in the future. But like I said, if you're going to do that, you got to give the batters something too. So. No, I agree. 
We're going to move on over to the hardwood. The East top seeded Philadelphia 76ers are headed home after a 103 to 96 loss to the Atlanta Hawks. And after another early exit, we'll certainly open old wounds and the debate between the fit between Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons is back. Ben Simmons was supposed to be the final piece to the process and the piece that Embiid needed to lead the 76ers to the promised land. But the last four years, Embiid and Simmons have yielded four independently devastating playoff disappointments for the 76ers. They've lost as the underdog. They've lost as the favorite. They've lost healthy. They've lost injured. If there is one player to blame for the 76ers' loss to Atlanta this season, it's Ben Simmons. He shot the ball four times in Game 7, including zero times in the fourth quarter. Brian can dox Nick Simmons, or do the 76ers need to look for that new final piece? Yeah, it's a tough one because I think as a player, you know, just looking at Ben Simmons in a vacuum, I, I do think he's a very talented player, certainly on the defensive side of the ball, right? I mean, he's got the size. Um, he's a top, uh, you know, if Rudy Gobert wasn't, you know, in the league, he'd probably have a little, a couple more defensive player of the year awards in his cabinet. I think he's that good on the defensive side of the ball. The, the issue is if you're going to be an elite point guard, in this league, unfortunately, the way that the league is heading, I don't think that you can be an elite defender and also be an elite point guard, if that makes sense. For me, my problem with Simmons is watching him over the course of this this playoffs, which I've probably actually watched a little bit more NBA playoffs this year than I have in years past. Simmons, I just, if you're going to be the guy, if you're a point guard, you can't be shooting 50% from the free throw line, right? And for me, I just get this vibe from him that he thinks that he is an elite player, and I just don't know if he's ever going to push himself to get better on the offensive side of the ball, especially free throw shooting. I don't even care if he's a a three-point shooter, right? We all know he can't shoot threes, but you can't also then be a terrible free throw shooter at the same time. If there's any coach in the league that can improve his game, I would think Doc Rivers is in that conversation. He's been known as a player's coach his entire career, and I think he could help Simmons. I think they have to keep the core together, but the question is what's going to happen in the offseason to cement the Sixers at the top of the East. I don't know if it means bringing in, you know, it's really Simmons and the Embiid show in Philly. They don't have a big three, quote-unquote. I know Tobias Harris kind of gets thrown into that third third player role there with them. If they can get somebody else in that starting rotation to give themselves a big three to compete with the likes of Brooklyn and even Giannis up in Milwaukee, who, even though they're no super team, they have a very deep and rounded team up in Milwaukee. I think you have to give it one more shot. Um, the the problem's going to be Simmons ask. He's a you know top 10 played player in the NBA, and if he doesn't produce, and I think he certainly would be the first one to admit that his Game 7 was not one of an elite NBA playoff player, or at least one that, an elite NBA playoff player should have. Um, I just don't know how much longer you can ride with both Embiid and Simmons paying them out as much as you are 
to come up short in the second round of the playoffs every year. So uh, I think there's some soul searching to be done in Philly. Philly's a hard place to play, but I think if Ben Simmons will put his head down in the offseason and fix a couple of the holes in his game, especially on the offensive side of the ball, he could go from, you know, the second tier of players, because I do think he's a second tier player, and then move up to, you know, the handful of guys that you would call, you know, the elite handful in the NBA if he works on those weaknesses. But uh, what do you think, Logan? You, you called this series, by the way, so kudos to you. I did. I picked Atlanta. Not so much for Atlanta. Certainly, I, I do like Trey Young, but uh, because of Embiid's injury, which turned out to really not be the total reason why they lost. But, I mean, right now, the sem- every 76ers fan would probably volunteer to drive Ben Simmons to the airport to get him out of the city of brotherly love there. You know, and although they want him out of town, there's really two reasons why Doc should get one more chance to kind of fix him. First, Ben Simmons is not even 25 yet. Right. Sixers fans are probably sick of hearing that, but he's still a young player in the league, and he's not the finished product that he will be at the end of his career. There's still a lot of time for the three-time All-Star to, to work on his game, particularly his shooting, because right now he is afraid to shoot. Um, I think that was pretty clear in Game 7. But if we remember, Jason Kidd wasn't a great shooter when he started in the NBA. He wound, And he wound up being, you know, one of the career top three-pointer shooters in the NBA. So I think it's still early to say that we can't fix his shooting. Uh, Simmons, undoubtedly, he needs to develop some resemblance of a, a jump shot. Um, you know, being a point guard, the primary ball handler, you have to have that in your bag. He's going to need some some training. Um Particularly, there's one guy, individual, Drew Hanlon. He's got a proven track record. He's helped superstars in the NBA, such as Bradley Beal, Jason Tatum, Zach Levine, Jordan Clarkson, and even Simmons' own teammate, Joel Embiid, who he's worked with for the four years. Every franchise wants to maximize those years that they have with their top players. And, and every team's going to go through the trials and tribulations. Embiid's 27. Simmons turns 25 next month. They still have a lot of years if Simmons can develop his shooting. Oh, uh, for and, sure. And secondly, you know, what is the realistic trade value for Simmons right now? He, he's the number one overall pick with a max contract. He's got a high ceiling, but certainly his value is at an all-time low. Um, if, if the Sixers were to explore the market right now, what would they really get for him? They wouldn't get the perceived perceived value they have for the all-defensive guard, you know? If the 76ers want to move on from him, they need to show that he's improved his shooting. And that means he's got to be on the team to start the season and show that he, he can shoot by playing. And maybe if, if things aren't going the way they like, they need to move him closer to the trade deadline and find that next piece. But they're not going to be able to get anything for him at this current time with his inability to shoot. Agreed. I, I he's got the intangible, so you know, take the off season, you take a couple weeks off. You, you gotta lick lick your wounds, go in, pl- you know, practice hard this off season. LeBron James, when he was a young player, had no post game 
if you watch him later in his career, it's like he's been doing it his whole life. So there's people out there, just like you mentioned, Logan, that can get him to where he wants to be on the offensive side of the ball. But, um, you know, Philly's a tough city. Um, you know, to lose in the second round, um, it's got to be tough. But uh, that brings us to the next round of the NBA playoffs, the Eastern and Western Conference uh, championships. We have our final four. The conference finals will pit the number three seeded Milwaukee Bucks off against the fifth seeded Atlanta Hawks in the East and a 2 4 matchup between the Suns and Clippers in the West. Uh, the Bucks and Hawks are both coming off huge victories in game seven of their conference semifinal series. After a few days of rest for both teams, the best of seven Eastern Conference Finals series will get started tomorrow evening in Milwaukee. Giannis and the Bucks had the number one seed in the playoffs in back to back seasons before finishing as the third seed this season behind the Sixers and Nets and were always considered a top seed contender in the East. Atlanta, on the other hand, are a bit of a Cinderella team after not being any uh not not, not after not being on anybody's radar to make it past the number four seeded next and then the number one seeded Sixers. The Bucks took two of three games from the Hawks during the regular season. Logan, who are you taking to represent the NBA uh in the East for the finals? Yeah, although I picked the, the Hawks to beat the 76ers. This is where their run ends. The Bucks are a deeper, more experienced team in this series. Drew Holiday offers the Bucks an excellent option defending Trey Young, who is really the heart and soul of that Atlanta offense. <clears throat> On the other side, you know, the Hawks will likely struggle against Milwaukee's size. You know, Chris Middleton, Brooks Lopez, and Giannis could all pose really matchup problems for Atlanta. Um, I could see the Hawks, in, with their ability to put up points, steal a game or two. But ultimately, I got Milwaukee, you know, proving too much to handle for the Young Hawks team. So I'm going to take the Bucks in five. Yeah, I'm going to pretty much agree with everything you said. I mentioned it earlier in the uh, previous topic. The Bucks have some depth, and they have a superstar of their own in Giannis. I think the Bucks' biggest challenge coming into the postseason was can they get past the Sixers? Can they get past the Nets? Those two teams are out. So... You know, Milwaukee, they have the talent. I think they can make it to the finals. They just need to make sure, and I think they will because they, you know, they're a good coach team. They have veteran presence, and I don't, Giannis is probably my favorite superstar in the league, if you want to call him a superstar. I think he's maybe one step oh, yeah. away from superstar status, but he's super humble, at least from what I've seen. Um, you know, he's a great player on both sides of the ball. He doesn't, he's not in the limelight, certainly not. Certainly not as much as other players being up in Milwaukee, which nobody would consider a top tier NBA city um, to play in. It's definitely not a prestigious market like in it, like New York or LA. Um, as long as they stay composed, they should be able to knock Atlanta off in five or six games. Kudos to the Hawks. It's been fun to watch. I love having that Cinderella story team. You know, even if it's not my team going into the playoffs and just knocking teams off left and right that they have no business beating. So it's been great for the playoffs. If there's one story this playoffs, you know, other than the Lakers losing in the first round, the Hawks getting this far is probably the next best story. Um, but I do think Milwaukee takes this series in six games. Yeah, and we could be seeing the next kind of generation of stars with, you know, Trey Young and, and guys like that. I mean, I think he is really going to have a, a great future. Yeah, I think, um, not to cut you off, but I think I saw the best stat I've seen all week, and it goes perfect with what you just mentioned, 
This is the first NBA Finals, I believe, since 2006 that will not feature Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, or Steph Curry. That's 15 years. And that's great for the NBA to have this good talent coming up. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, but over in the Western Conference, the uh, finals feature some fresh faces who haven't been in the in this position in a long time, or if at all. The number four seeded Clippers made franchise history on Friday night by beating the number one Utah Jazz in six games, thus earning their first trip beyond round two in 50 years of the team's existence. This after coming back from a 3-2 deficit to beat the Dallas Mavericks in seven games. Meanwhile, the Suns find themselves well-rested and mostly healthy after defeating the defending champion Los Angeles Lakers in six games and the Denver Nuggets in a sweep. Both teams were without their star players in Game 1. Both Kawhi Leonard and Chris Paul have been ruled out for Game 2 tonight. Brian, who do you see moving on to the Finals in the West? Yeah, you know, uh, you hate to have this matchup with injuries, right? I mean, I wanted to see the full-force Suns versus the full-force Clippers. You know, Ka- uh, Kawhi versus Chris Paul. Those are, you know, even though Devin Booker is probably the best player on the Suns, I mean, CP3 is the name that gets people fired up to watch them. He's the veteran guy. We talked about him a lot last week. Kawhi, of course, you know, the end of the Popovich era, one of the best defensive players in the league, NBA champion with Toronto. It's a great matchup. I am just, the Suns have have impressed me to no end this offseason, or this postseason. You know, great against the Lakers, sweep Denver and the reigning MVP, uh, Nikola Jokic. I just think that they are too strong even for the Clippers. The Clippers, in comparison, at least in my eyes, have been a team that's struggled through the postseason. Mm -hmm. I know they took down Utah, but it wasn't... And no offense to Utah, certainly a great team. You have to be to have the number one seed. But I don't think, at least not us, in conversation... I don't think we've ever said it. Yeah, I really think Utah's going to win the whole thing, right? So mm-hmm. I, I don't know why that is. They don't have, you know, they they certainly have their stars. Um, I think they're another year or two away from really being an elite team. But the Clippers struggled against Dallas, against Utah somewhat, and in through a game and a half now because they're actually playing right now. The Suns, you know, have been playing strong against the Clippers again and. I think it's really going to come down to, does CP3 come back? Does Kawhi come back? Those are questions we don't know the answers to right now. But if things stay consistent the way they are, I would say the Suns take this series over the Clippers just because they have all the momentum in their favor right now. They've been playing great basketball all postseason. Devin Booker is a monster. He's finally getting some of the limelight that he deserves. Um, I'll take the Suns uh, in six games. I'm also taking the Suns in six. The injuries have really made this kind of a less predictable series, uh, certainly kind of the least predictable in, in some time. But, uh, you know, it was a valiant effort by the Clippers uh, to take down the, the Jazz without Kawhi. But I'm skeptical that Kawhi Leonard's 
going to have a chance to play in this series. Uh, and if he does, what really will be his effectiveness coming off <clears throat> that injury? Um, you know, the Clippers, they're a good team. They they deserve everything that they've gotten so far. They've come back in the face of adversity versus, you know, the Mavericks, and they beat the number one seed. So certainly they have a chance in the series. But it's going to be hard for them to continue to play at this level without Kawhi Leonard against the healthy Suns who's had a week to prepare. They've got rest, you know. Devin Booker's really helped them out when they won game one. And Chris Paul, he's going to come back before, before Kawhi. And he's coming off COVID, not, a, not a, uh, what, an ankle injury. So CP3 is going to be more effective. He's going to return sooner. I, I just think this team is too deep for the Clippers to kind of hang with for the full series. So I'm going to take the Suns in six. Agreed. And then, uh, you know, Milwaukee versus Phoenix should be a good matchup. Uh, I think I'll probably actually watch more games than I, (laughs) than I have in the past for that finals, new teams, new players. I mean, in the finals, that's, that's what compels me to watch. Um, but that brings us to the sweet stuff. Our beloved NFL topic of the week. That's what you're all in here for other than our wives. Maybe, but uh, <laughs> so the Tampa Bay Bucks didn't have the best record in the NFC last year. Didn't matter; they still walked away with the hardware at the end of the season. And with all 22 starters returning from last season's Super Bowl roster, and Brady looking healthier than ever, Vegas believes that the Tampa Bay Bucks are the NFC favorite when the season kicks off on September 9th. Logan, do you see the Bucks? Do you see the Bucks as the best team in the NFC? And which NFC team could stop a Buccaneers repeat? Yeah, the Bucs are certainly going to be among the favorites in the NFC. But kind of like you said in the intro, they didn't have the best record last year, you know, even though they won the Super Bowl. And if you're not improving your, your starters, you're not getting better in the league. Um, you know, Looking at teams like Green Bay and the offseason kind of turmoil they've been in, the tensions between Seattle and Russell Westbrook. I still believe the Bucks are better than both those teams right now. But the team that I have my eye on in the NFC is the Rams. I anticipate the Rams are going to be a big-time threat to the Bucks and their chance to repeat this season. People forget that the Rams had like the number one defense last season. They were number one in points allowed, number one in yards allowed, number one in pass against a pass, number three against the rush. They've got Aaron Donald on the front line. They've got... Leonard Floyd, the linebacker. They got Jalen Ramsey in the secondary. I don't expect this defense to take a step back at all. I expect them to still be a top defense this year. And you combine that defense with an offense that should be much improved from last season, an offense that has Cam Akers and Darnell Henderson, both of who averaged more than four yards per carry in the backfield. They've got Robert Woods and Cooper Cup, who, you know, were both shy of 1,000 yards receiving seasons last year and that's considering the troubles they had at offense you know with jared goff as as their quarterback uh you know so you combine that now with matthew stafford who is in my opinion a upgrade to goff and he'll be more effective and more efficient this season so last season the bucks went 11-5 they returned all the same starters the rams went 10-6 and they improved i think the rams could be 
the best team in the NFC at the end of the season. And uh, we'll have to watch out. They play week three this season, so we'll have to see those who wins that game. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. You know, the only thing I will say about the Bucks is you. the thing to remember is you did have a new quarterback, although he is the GOAT, in my opinion, coming to a new team. It's a new system. There was probably a little bit of a learning curve in the beginning of the season. I think we can both agree that the Bucks only got better, or mm-hmm. at least only seemed to get better as the season went. So the question is going to be, even though they haven't improved from a personnel personnel standpoint, are they still better than they were at the beginning of last season because now they've all played a full year together under the system, right? That would be my biggest argument as to why they are actually better with the same personnel. But I agree with you 100%, and I assume that this conversation that we're having still with the skepticism that Rodgers may not be playing for Green Bay because if he's not, it's really between, in my opinion, I agree with you 100%, the Rams, who I think win the NFC West based on the improvements that they've made in the offseason. I still think Seattle, smaller chance, still in the conversation. You know, Russell Wilson's still a great player. They have a great offense. If they can tighten the defense back up to what it was a couple of years ago, I think they have a good chance. And then of course my third and final team in the NFC that even I think is in the conversation because I'm just looking through you know, all 16 teams in the NFC, there's only three that I could even sit here and say with any type of confidence they have a chance to even beat the Bucks in the regular season in a matchup would be LA, Seattle, and then, of course, Green Bay if Rodgers is the quarterback. Um, we still don't know about that. If Rodgers is the quarterback in Green Bay, I would still probably put Green Bay number one, um, number one threat to Tampa. I still think they should have won that NFC championship game. Mm-hmm. I just think too many things went wrong too early in that game and they just couldn't overcome. So Green Bay, LA, maybe Seattle, everybody else just start planning for 2022. Yeah, I agree. If if Rodgers is back, that is the number one team in the NFC by far. So we'll have to wait and see what happens with that. But moving on to who you got. The NBA Conference Semifinals had a little bit of everything. Two thrilling Game 7s with Giannis in the Milwaukee Bucks, outlasting Katie in the Brooklyn Nets in overtime. Trey Young in the Atlanta Falcons, stunning the top seed of Philadelphia 76ers. And Joel Embiid uh, at home to advance. Paul George stepping up with Kawhi being down and leading the Clippers past the Utah Jazz after initially going down 0-2 in the series. And CP3 in the Suns obliterating the 2021 MVP via the sweep. Brian, who you got as the MVP of the conference semifinals? I think it's got to be Trey Young. I mean, you're every other team that you mentioned that has a core of guys, people expected them to go far into the playoffs. You have to give props to a team that nobody expected to get this far, and Trey Young has certainly shown that he is their most valuable player. He has put that team on his back, and have t- and has taken them not single-handedly but most-handedly <laughs> uh, on Atlanta to a place that I don't think anybody, maybe not even their own office, expected them to get this season. So as well as CP3 has played, as well as Paul George has played, Giannis, I'm giving the MVP thus far in the conference semis to Trey Young of the Atlanta Hawks um, for just surprising it pretty much everybody in the NBA uh, world and taking down Philly in seven games. I wanted to go young, but 
in the second round, he kind of struggled at times, you know, with his efficiency. Um, still super amazing player and, and fun to watch. And like we said, the future. But I, I'm going to go with Kevin Durant. I know that usually you don't give the MVP consideration to a team that loses. Uh, but the effort he put in in the second round versus Milwaukee, incredible. He played all of Game 5 and scored 49 points, including 20 in the fourth quarter, when you know he nearly outscored the entire Bucks team by himself. Followed that up with another 48 points in Game 7, playing all 53 minutes and setting an NBA Game 7 record with 48 points. You know, Durant's status as an elite player who was kind of questioned this year with his 18 months of rest due to the AC, uh, this Achilles tendon injury. Um, you know, after Game 5, Giannis summed it up kind of saying that he's the best player in the world right now. And from probably being the second or third best player in the league, that's a big compliment. You know, Giannis said the same thing after Game 7. Uh, so for me right now... It's Kevin Durant for the semis. Yeah, he he was scoring 35 points per game this this round, shooting almost 50 percent from the field goal. You know, almost 35 for from three points. You know, averaging 10 rebounds, almost two steals, and, and six assists. So he was really kind of doing it all out there. Um, it, it just sucks. I really wanted them to go on. But uh, maybe next year. Yeah, super impressive. I, I don't disagree with his effort. We've had this conversation before. I don't give MVPs to losing teams, but I certainly understand the argument. Um, and he's a great player. Um, I hope that one day he gets out of that shadow of what he's become now, which is a villain in the NBA to most people. I think he's embraced it to some extent, but I do think that he's become a villain in the mm-hmm. NBA just because of what he's done. Um, you know, after leaving Oklahoma City to essentially go join the enemy is what a lot of people view him as, but he is by far one of the best players in the NBA currently, if not the best right now in the NBA. And um, it'll be interesting to see what Brooklyn does with a healthy team for a full season next year. Um, he's definitely the leader of that team. He's not in anybody's shadow, I would argue. Um, great player. So I, I don't disagree with your uh, your analysis whatsoever. But uh That brings us to this day in sports history. So on this day in 1972, President Richard Nixon signed the Education Amendments of 1972 into public law. That legislation added Title IX to the Civil Rights Act, which granted athletes the right to equal opportunity in sports and educational institutions that receive federal funds. Title IX removed barriers for female athletes. And while female sports programs still have fewer teams, fewer scholarships, and lower budgets than their male counterparts, title, uh, since Title IX's passage, female participation at the high school level has grown by 1,057% and 614% at the college level. Little fact for you, Logan. There you go. So uh, with that being said, this has been another episode of the uh, uh, sideline sportscast we appreciate you being with us uh, for the episode look forward to our next episode next week and until then this has been the sideline sportscast thank you